You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javet, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host. In this podcast, we cover everything from churches and church planting efforts, mission and missions organization evangelism, and unreached people groups, emerging movements and initiatives, justice, current events related to faith, and the persecuted church too author interviews, and more. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to our Urban Voices. I'm your host, Dr. Alphonse Javid. Today I'm joined by Dr. Drew Johnson, author of Human Rights, R-I-T-E-S, The Power of Rituals, Habits, and Sacraments. Our topic today focuses on how our religious rituals and habits shape us and our beliefs. Drew is an associate professor of uh, Biblical and Theological Studies, and we'll talk more about that. He is um, in New York City. He's working with King's College. Uh, Before that, he was a high school dropout, skinhead, punk rock drummer, combat veteran, IT supervisor, and pastor, all things that he hopes none of his children ever become, which is awesome. So (laughs) thanks for joining us, Drew. Thank you very much. Great to be All here. All right. So before even we um, start talking about your ministry, your book, your work, I would love to talk about our families. Let me start mm. by saying, and audience already knows, because I talk about my family a lot. So I got four children, uh, five, three, and my girls are, twin girls are year and a half old. So that's my story. Uh, tell me a little bit about your family. Uh, so my immediate family, I have four children as well, uh, 20, 19, 18, and 15. They're all getting ready to stair step up in, a, in the next couple of months. Oh, so uh, that means you can take vacations, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Life, life changes radically. Uh, <laughs> so when, you don't need to wait for the babysitter or anything. No, That's awesome. I, we haven't had a babysitter in a year. So yeah, it's great. Uh, and also, I, you know, when I think of family, I, I I grew up in a house of biracial adopted. So my siblings were, none of us are biologically related to each other. Oh. Uh, and my older two children uh, are adopted as well. We adopted them from uh, Guatemala originally. And so, um, so I have kids that don't look anything like me. And then two kids, God bless those girls. They, they look a lot like me, probably more than they want to hear. So, but yeah, we're, we're a, a happy little clan. That's awesome. So my children, uh, their mom is, uh, she was born and raised, I mean, well, she, she was born in somewhere in Pennsylvania, but she was, uh, she grew up in Buffalo area and uh, uh, my children look like her. So I'm Pakistani, she is uh, Caucasian American. So uh, usually uh, that's the trouble. Wherever we go, people don't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> that's my child. Those are my children, but I love them. Um, yes. They know they are. Um, so you are director of the Center for Hebraic Thought at the King's College in New yep. York City. But let's start with the basics. You feel free to talk about your position as a associate professor there. But in the book, Human Rights, you point out how many habits and rituals fill our daily lives that we don't usually notice or question. Mm. Can you give a couple of everyday examples? Also, what is the difference uh, between a habit, a ritual, and a right? Uh, yeah, that's a good clarification right out of the gates. Um, and in fact, some people got really mad about the book because they're like, you don't really 
define your terms. And uh, that is true. I kind of leave it to the reader to pick up what I'm trying to lay down along the way. But I think that the easiest way to think of a ritual, uh, and again, this is a very debated topic among scholars. So, but I think a simple way to think of a ritual is my daily habits are things that I do, like brushing teeth or washing hands. These are things that I do uh, throughout the day because they've been taught to me. There might be other things like, I don't know, when, when you're driving, I might have a habit of signaling at a certain time before I'm going to turn. I live in New Jersey, so I, I have this habit of signaling very early and making all of my intentions on the road known because people drive crazily in New Jersey. <laughs> um, but the, when does that become a ritual in, in thinking about that, that going from regular routine behavior into a ritual? Well, A, rituals don't have to be regular routine in a behavior. Like we all think baptism is a ritual, but that only happens to me once, right? For most Christians. Um, circumcision was a ritual, very big one in the Jewish community, but that only happens again once. And so it doesn't have to be something we do over and over and over again, but certainly mm. things that we do over and over again, I think they enter the world of rituals when I begin prescribing the way I do it to other people. Now, and the, the question is like, well, what exactly am I prescribing? So brushing teeth is an easy one. I, I was taught this. I trust that it actually does what it supposedly does, although it's all magic to me. I don't really have any evidence. You know, some people brush their teeth every day and they still get cavities just because of genetics. Um, some people brush their teeth every day and they say, well, that's why my teeth are so healthy. So I just trust the system that tells me to do this. But notice I'm, I'm, you know, there's cleaning your teeth because you want your mouth clean. And then there's cleaning your teeth because you want mouth health. Uh, the first one I can immediately see. The second one I'm trusting in a system in order to believe and do. Um, so the second one feels more like a ritual to me in the sense of somebody is prescribing it for me to do. And in some sense, they're prescribing me this ritual brushing my teeth with fluor fluoride or whatever in order that and something else happens besides just the immediate mouth clean that I get that day. And so that kind of pushes into this other realm of strategically changing some normal activity for some other purpose. And so, if, you know, for a quick example, baptism is just bathing. I mean, literally the word baptizo in Greek, it means to wash, but baptism is bathing strategically changed uh, just a little bit in order to accomplish something else. Now, people will argue endlessly about what this something else is, but we don't need to go there. Uh, all we need to do is admit that it is something more than physically washing your skin. Well, I'm going to come back to this question, and I want to dig deeper a little bit. As Christian, we have a number of rites that we participate, mm -hmm. and you already mentioned one, baptism. And I want to talk about communion, the order of worship at our churches and other uh, mm -hmm. things like that. But let me take you back. Number one, you talk about New Jersey. Um, <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> more important topics, right? We, yeah, we gotta, yeah. We got to prioritize I live in those. Newark, so it's hard <laughs> to get away from the, the, the New Jersey-ness New of Jersey. my locale. So, yeah. yeah, so we moved to New Jersey with my family in, last year uh, from New York, from Midtown. And I'm learning that, man. I don't understand those what you call that jug handle? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a jug handle. Yes. Yeah. I paid many tolls learning um, about jug handles. Yeah. I'm telling you, that's the most difficult thing to learn here. I'm still don't like it. I, I, I mean, it's turning me into like, I don't know, impatient driver. Yeah. But yeah, but I, I get your point. Totally. I get your point. And in your book, you're, you suggest that we examine these habits and rituals. Why is that so important to you? Or why do you think it's important for us 
to examine those yeah. habits and rituals? Uh, number one reason I'm, you know, uh, absolutely, we should examine them be, because as Christians, Scripture actually, I think, demands that we examine uh, our ritual life, which uh, we, will, we will talk more about later. But mm-hmm. uh, the second part really is we're all doing these things. We're all like, you know, I have a, I used to have a little glass brick called an iPhone that I picked <laughs> up and just started doing things with. Not because I invented an iPhone or I invented these habits. It's because it came with all these pre-scripted activities for me to do. And of course, I, I used the iPhone or I used to because I wanted to do things on it. And what I learned over time through doing some of the research for this book, like a lot of people have learned, is that actually the people who are prescribing those certain rituals, like, you know, they really do have this other goal in mind. They're trying to get me, trying to get me to touch that glass and look at it as much as possible but not for the sake of touching and looking at glass, but to actually commoditize that touching and looking for some other goal. Mm. And so, you know, there, there's the, uh, you know, those dictums that academics like to say, it's not a matter of whether you're going to do rituals or not. Your life is already thoroughly drenched in rituals being prescribed. Mm. Uh, the question is who's prescribing them and to what end are they getting you to do these things? And you could think of makeup rituals or workout rituals or, um, you know, uh, self-curation rituals on social media, uh, but it, the, the list goes on. It's not a matter of wh- whether we do or don't. It's how well we steward uh, the rituals that we live in. So to clarify, do you think that it is important for everyone to evaluate our habits and rituals or, or um, do you think this is an issue that mainly affects Christians? Oh no, yeah. I mean, I think this. I think we are created by God, everybody, uh, as as ritual creatures. Like we, this is how we exist in the world, including our education, learning, uh, you know, uh, learning practices, uh, marriage practices. It's it's core to the to the to who we are as humans, and so I think anybody benefits from this. In fact, Sherry Turkle from MIT. Uh, has written a lot on this very this very issue of how we interact with technology that's shaping the way we think about the world. It's shaping our endocrine system. It's shaping it's shaping it's transforming us as humans. And just a simple example of this, you know, since I have adult children, young adult children, I I watched within a year when this thing called TikTok came in. Mm-hmm. I watched their sense of humor change mm-hmm. radically in a very short period of time. And now sense of humor, like, okay, you might say, well, who cares? Right. But if their sense of humor can change that quickly. And I mean, like really like definitively change um, uh, it, you, you have to imagine that that has proliferating effects all the way down into how they think about themselves, the world, mm. how they interact with the world. Mm. Well, so that, so what, I mean, I I think it's very clear. You are saying that everyone, mm-hmm. it's not not only us. It's all types of people um, in in everyday life, and 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 it's it, it has implication in everyday life actually. Um, and I like the idea of TikTok and phone. It's not just only um, spiritual stuff. We are talking about everyday life. Go on. You were going to say something. Sorry. Yeah, I think there is a serious question, you know, so what I try to do in the book is move people away from their hangups with the terms ritual and whatever they think that might be, uh, and their experiences of what they thought ritual were and Mm -hmm. getting them thinking more about who is prescribing these rituals and and Mm -hmm. what, you know, almost 
you know, do a little bit, what gives them the right to tell me what to do? Now, that can be a really horrible question <laughs> and pugnacious individualist American question that we can ask sometimes. Um, but that can be a helpful question. You know, what gives you the right to prescribe these rituals to me? Right. And I think, you know, um, that can happen in a, in a college setting because I teach college students. And so mm -hmm. I often give them very bizarre assignments that they might not understand. And they'll ask, they'll ask this question, why are you doing it? Why are you asking us to do this thing? Um, and I have to review with them that I actually have the right to do this. And, uh, and, and also, Hey, you need to trust me a little bit here. I, I've taught mm -hmm. this class many times. I kind of know what I'm doing and, and mm -hmm. it, it will work, you know? Yeah. And so I think it's a fair question to, to put to the rituals that have been handed to us. So you include a fra framework for us to evaluate our habits for, yes. for our listener listeners. Would you mind walking us through the process with a specific example? Yeah. So the, the question is, you know, it's kind of like, um, Larry Burkett, who, when I became a Christian, uh, I started listening to Christian radio and Larry Burkett was this guy who did Christian finances. And he always said, you know, if you're having money problems, don't, don't change your financial patterns, start by reviewing them, like making note of every dollar you spend. And I think there's a similar way that you can kind of just start making note of all of the rituals in your life, right. just what they are. What are you doing every day? How are you spending money? Where are you spending time and energy emotionally or other words? Um, and asking a few questions. Who, who is scripting this for me? Who told me I should be doing this? Uh, what's the goal of the ritual, if we can determine that? And, and who and how must it be practiced? And then um, also kind of how can it be improvised? So I think of, I go to the gym most days of the week. And again, the, going to the gym. So is that's the, why you are so fit and good looking. <laughs> I wish okay, I, continue, I wish, please. Yeah. Well, since there'll be no pictures, we can say that. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm just old. So I'm just trying to be able to stand up when I'm 80. That's essentially oh, my, my only Love goal that. of exercising. Is that the TikTok? That changing your humor? Huh? <laughs> yeah, it could be. I'm sorry for yeah. breaking your thought process, brother. Go yeah. back. Sorry. No, it, it, I, exercise is one of those things because it does kind of demand something of us. I mean, you know, everybody wants to exercise until they start doing it. Right. And, um, but you know, why do we do these certain workouts? Well, because I, you know, when I was 40 years old, I realized I was having certain problems and I was like, okay, I'm going to go online and see a nutritionist and see what they tell me I should be eating and what kind of workout I should be doing and found a workout for people over 40, which is essentially a workout for anybody, but you know, it was labeled that way on the internet just to get people <laughs> like me on there. Good marketing. Um, yeah, exactly. And, uh, but again, who, who scripted those rituals, right? Cause they're going to mm. ask me, I mean, if you think about it, they're asking you to put your body, you know, you dress in weird clothes, mm -hmm. you put your body in really weird positions, mm -hmm. uh, ones that could be dangerous if, if the person doesn't know what they're talking about and could cause serious bodily harm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, what's the goal of this? Well, you know, the goal can, you know, obviously there's lots of workouts, the goal to look good in some way. Mine was just to make sure all my muscles and bones were functioning correctly together. And that was the, the goal. So I do these weird things, these normal practices. I sit in weird ways. I move my arms in weird ways uh, with weights on them. And by doing that, I come to know something like this general physical health. And, you know, for the first couple of weeks, for those of you that have not stepped away from exercise and then come back to it, like the first couple of weeks, you, you just have to convince yourself this is going to work, right? Because it just hurts the first couple of weeks. And then, or hope that's going to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're trusting, right? You're yeah. trusting somebody who's scripting these weird actions yeah. Um, yeah. that it works. And then there's also improvisation. You know, they may tell you do three sets of this or whatever, but I, mm -hmm. I find that I vary according to need and 
according to how I see certain things working in my own body. Um, and there are, you know, obvious it, it's, it's okay to do an extra set as an improvisation on the instructions that were given to me. It would not be okay to do 17 extra sets or, you know, just one quarter of one set instead of three sets or something like that. So there's kind of a range of what improv safe improvisation looks like uh, when you're giving these rituals on how to exercise in order to gain bodily health. That's a, I mean, I think that's one that most of us can understand. Yeah. And I think this is uh, important. And I, are you a pastor? I, I was a pastor. Yeah, man, your, your illustrations are so cool. I mean, every single thing you're, uh, you know, you, the way you approach the, the life situations is almost, you know, in Jesus' time, that would be, oh, look over there, that field, uh, how right. that functions. And I, I like that the way you are bringing it down to everyday life to show us something so deeper. And that's what I'm, I think the next question is going to take us. And uh, let, let's talk about this, actually. So I said, in addition to our cultural habit and rituals as Christians, we have a number of rites that we participate in. And um, baptism, you already spoke about that a little bit. Then we have communion, the order of worship at our churches and other things like that. In researching uh, your book, what surprised you about a common ritual in the church? About any particular ritual or just about the common rituals? I, I mean, I would, well, why don't you, if you can be, you know, precise, if it's yeah. shorter answer, I would love to hear both. Yeah. If there's a common one that everybody sees or maybe some something particular that you notice, either when both will, I mean, I would love yeah. to hear both. Yeah. I, I tried to very carefully avoid telling people about how to think about the sacraments specifically, you know, uh, and kind of let people within their traditions uh, work those issues out. I, I did find actually uh, when I was speaking about this in Jerusalem at the Christ Church in Jaffa Gate there in the old city, yeah, it's an interesting church because there's lots of pilgrims from around the world. So you'll have mm -hmm. Russian Christians and African mm -hmm. Christians uh, all in the same room. And I asked the question, how do you pray? And people started telling me the words. And I said, no, 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 what's physically in your church? When somebody says, let's pray, what position do people get their bodies in? Right. And it was interesting to see in the room. I said, actually, can, can you guys just do this, right? Can you enact this right now? Some people looked up at the ceiling, some people with their eyes open, some with their eyes closed. Some people immediately got down on the ground and kneeled in front of their chair. Uh, some people bowed their head and kind of slumped their shoulders down. And then, you know, the question became, okay, you're all Christians. Why are you all doing different things? And these are things that you feel like everybody in your tradition would easily understand and respect if anybody said, let's pray. Uh, also, some of the Southern guys, if you know Southerners in the mm -hmm. United States, mm -hmm. their hats came off uh, right. when you say, let's pray, right? And so I think that that, that kind of improvisation, right, that they all feel like they're doing a, the same activity and they all feel like the body is involved. Like, so praying is not a mental or what some people call, I think, a spiritual activity, mm -hmm. um, but that it's actually a fully embodied activity. And and they're all, again, strategically changing something, right? So it's not that I'm just sitting here, but that I bow my head to, sh you know, you say, well, why are you bowing your head? And people will give you all kinds of answers. Mm -hmm. And I think this ties to the other one that I saw that kind of shocked me when I was a pastor was uh, I had to do my first wedding and you're a pastor too. So I don't know if mm -hmm. you had this problem, but I had to do my first wedding and I was kind of looking through scripture now, I became a Christian when I was 20. I didn't really know the Bible before I became a Christian, went to seminary, 
and hadn't really mastered the Bible by the time I'd finished seminary. So I didn't know that there were no wedding ceremonies in scripture. I just assumed somewhere <laughs> in there it has the, and do you take your husband, you know? And so I was actually searching scripture, looking for that, the, That's for real. That's what yes. happened with you. Yes. Yeah. My yeah. Gosh, that's no, amazing. I can't, I cannot tell you how naive I was about so many things when I became a Christian. Oh. Um, and, you know, I actually went to my senior pastor and I was like, uh, where's the marriage ceremony? And he right. just kind of smiled and winked, you know, and that, and that's when I found out, wait, the marriage ceremony is entirely improvised, which Correct. makes sense why so many Christians around the world do it so differently from yeah. one another. But they all feel like there are certain things that must happen. So they feel like they must pronounce words over the people. Mm -hmm. They feel like they must physically join them in some way. Typically, they dress, you know, in a way that they never dress again for the rest of their life. You know, it's just for that one ceremony. And so, again, these are all strategic twists. It's like going to a fancy dinner, but you wear something different. It's like walking down an aisle in American weddings. It's often walking mm -hmm. down the aisle. Mm -hmm but you walk funny, you know, slow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the wedding coordinator is always there yelling at you to slow down, <laughs> slow down, you know? And so we have this sense of ceremonial nature, which I think is, our, but if you ask people, but why do you do each one of those things? Or in the book, I give a graduation. Like, why do you, I don't think most people know why they wear a gown at a graduation. I don't think most people could actually connect it back to the, the tradition, the ritual from which it comes. And so you know, this kind of mentality that we have, like, well, I'm not going to do that ritual until I understand what it is and why we do it. I'm like, you're already doing tons of rituals that you, you don't understand where they came from. You just do them because your culture has taught you these things. And so I think I was surprised to see how much variation there is in the church on some of the most common rituals, including communion, which can go all the way from unleavened bread and wine all the way down to individually poured hermetically sealed biscuits on top of grape juice, um, which in some cases I had students telling me on a youth trip somewhere, you know, they did Doritos and Mountain Dew, but there's something that people, a, the physical elements and they're all improvising. And I think this kind of sense that like we do it correctly Mm -hmm. seems less realistic given that all these people are faithfully trying to do something with their bodies in mm -hmm. the, in the body of Christ. Yeah. And I don't, you know, it's hard for me to believe that God is like yeah. looking away going like, no, not like that people. You know? Right. Right. Actually, uh, as you were talking, I thought about, uh, so I was pastor in um, associate pastor here. Uh, um, my current role is senior pastor of a church, but my previous role was uh, associate pastor and during pandemic, that was one of the discussion question mm. we had. And we saw that it was not just only us who changed everyone because you got to have communion. That's right. part of your right. church life. And if you're not meeting in person, what you're going to do? So then we start doing this uh, funny things and grab a juice, grab mm. a bread, grab a taco a bread, <laughs> like, you know, tortilla bread or whatever. So you're right. So again, it goes back to what you just said. We may not think about these things, but we do. And when the circumstances force us, uh, we evolve and adopt to new habits. That's interesting. All of this is very interesting. Yeah. And then the question when we adopt and adapt is, how do we know when we've gone too far? You know, right. at, what, at what point have we crossed some invisible boundary? Right. And, that, and I think that just requires, that's why I think the biblical tradition is a wisdom tradition. So right. it requires wisdom and discernment. So did you find the, that the original purpose of any ritual contradicted how it is 
understood or practiced in modern no. day churches in America? I mean, you were talking about communion and other things. I'm just wondering. Yeah. Um, nothing that contradicted. I, I think of baptism because I think most Christians, like me, you know, I, you think baptism is a simple thing and it's like, look, there's water and a human body and what is there to it? And then you ask questions like, okay, well, who, who invented this baptism thing? And people say, well, Jesus, and you go, well, no, because Jesus was baptized by somebody, John. Okay. Well, where did John get it from? Well, he lived very near a baptizing community in Qumran where they did baptism three or three to five times a day. But Jews in the days of Jesus would have all gotten baptized weekly before they went to the synagogue uh, in a mikvah baptism. And so, well, where did the mikvah baptism come from? Well, that's a Hellenistic Jewish. It's this idea from you know a few hundred years before Jesus that seems to be adopting and adapting Levitical baptism, which is for people who have had certain emissions of bodily fluids from Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Or people who have been healed of some kind of skin disease, they have to go baptize themselves. Uh, or even, you know, thinking of the Naaman and Kings, the Syrian commander who has to baptize himself in the Jordan River, just like John the Baptist is going to do later. So even in scripture, you get a ritualization of an already existing ritual. Mm-hmm. So by the time you get to Jesus' baptism, you're at the seventh, the eighth version of a baptism that's been strategically changed for this uh, new goal. And the, the most interesting thing about the strategic change for Jesus's baptism is that he took something that would have been done weekly by many Jews, or and some, for some of them, it would have been done daily or multiple times a day, but just a few. Uh, and he turns it into a one-off. He, so he kind of reverses it. And he takes something that you do to yourself. You, you baptize yourself in the mikvah waters before you go into synagogue. And it, and it becomes now a passive activity where you get baptized. So most mm. people point out in the New Testament, there is no active go baptize yourself. It's you be, you are baptized by somebody else. Uh, even Jesus had to be baptized by somebody else. Mm. Um, and so uh, the, I think not contradict, but the, the only thing that makes me a little uneasy is when I take people to, to Israel Sometimes people will go get what I call souvenir baptism, where they'll go to the Jordan <laughs> River mm-hmm. and get baptized again. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what to make of that, quite honestly. Uh, that's one of those where I'm like, that for me goes outside of the boundaries of safe improvisation. But I don't right. want to. I don't want to call balls and strikes as they as it is right, uh, on, right. on this issue. I don't want to tell people they can't. I just want to say like, let's go look at the text again and see see, see what, what it what thinks. does it say. Yeah. 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 So you've shown us how Christian could benefit from examining our rituals. How do you think other religious communities could benefit from looking at their own communities as well? So here I'm thinking, and I'm going to ask you another question in a minute, but I'm thinking about um, Muslims. I've been working mm. with Muslim communities for a very long time. Um, and um, there also you find uh, a lot of rituals and baptism is one of them. And it's mm. not the baptism per se, what you were earlier referring to in a day, they will get uh, baptized, right? Um, mm. Jewish community, same thing, which is mm. evolution that you have to wash yourself in a certain way. So if you take a bath that you then you don't need to do everything. They do that on uh, Friday because that's the holiest day. So before you go to the mosque for uh, Juma, which is the main mm-hmm. sermon day, you do the whole, uh, you know, bathing. Same thing with uh, if you have any, uh, you have, uh, um, you know, um, you slept 
with your wife or your mm-hmm. husband. You have to get that before prayer. But usually you just uh, do ablution, wash your hands, feet, mm. certain parts of your body, um, ear behind the ear, under here, all kind of different spots. It's like very, you know, um, programmed uh, yeah. thing. So let's, uh, and same thing, Hindus have that, Hib- yeah, oh, yeah. Buddhists have that. So how do you think other religious communities could benefit from looking at their own communities as well? Well, I, I think, first of all, Christians can benefit from understanding other religious rituals. Uh, in fact, a lot of the research, I, I, I wrote a really nerdy academic book before I wrote this book, um, <laughs> you know, for other scholars. And so a lot of the research I did there was actually just from cultural anthropologists and religious scholars. And so most of it was about r- rituals in other religions. In fact, it was the Hindu uh, ritual, some very local Hindu uh, rituals in India that kind of cracked my mind open on a few issues that enabled me to see some things in scripture I hadn't noticed before because these were people who were still practicing uh, animal sacrifice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in a particular way. And it actually it allowed me to get off the, the act of killing, which is I think where most of us get hung up on the animal sacrifices and realize mm-hmm. that it's actually what has happened the months before that sacrifice happens. It's probably just as important as the actual killing of the animal. But that was something that I, again, I had, I was listening and, and studying other religions. I think the, you know, the thing that you see in, in Judaism and Hinduism and, and Islam of the, the kind that you're describing, that kind of ablution, uh, that, that situating of yourself with, I am a particular, you know, I'm in a particular condition and I need to be washed. And I know this washing doesn't, you know, it's not taking evil germs off me. It's actually just a, 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 it's a strategically changed washing for this other purpose, at least part of it. And this is what I found in scripture was what's that other purpose? Well, a major part of it in scripture is so that you understand yourself in the world and your relation to God and creation better. That's like primary goal of most of Israel's rituals. And I can't help but think that when you're doing these evolution wise, like how many Protestants think about, okay, after I've had sex with my spouse, I need to do a quick wash down uh, so that I can come into church. Mm-hmm. Like think about how that would change your own relationship to your own body and how you saw yourself and coming before God in this, in the social body of the church. I'm not suggesting we adopt all of these mm-hmm. rituals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I certainly think that when you look at Israel's rituals, they are certainly always remen- uh, meant to remind you that you're, you are not embodied. You are a body mm-hmm. in a body uh, within a body of believers I think that would certainly help us to understand what scripture takes for granted, which is we are individuals within a community and God deals equally with the community and the individuals within it. So I think a lot of the rituals that American Christians have gotten hung up on are what were originally body rituals for the social body, for, for the, you know, the community of Israel, for the community of Christian believers. And they get, uh, warped down into individualistic ones. So it's about me and this bread in my hand and me and God during communion rather than a, a shared meal before God that brings in outsiders and um, serves the people in the community. Mm. Uh, baptism becomes about me and God and my decision to get baptized rather than me like uh, responding to a covenant in some way and mm. uh, res- responding to the covenant community. So I kind of lied a little bit earlier when I said, you only get baptized once. Well, mm-hmm. I, you do, but the community performs the ritual regularly. Right. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And is this original to you, uh, Drew, when you said 
I am a body in a body. And then the third piece was, uh, what was that? Uh, in, in the community, I guess. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you just use the Did word <laughs> body three times. And oh, yeah. I was like, huh, that's very neat the way he's yeah. using. Actually, that's from an atheist cultural anthropologist who's, okay. now, who's passed away. But she, she really highlights rituals about are as much about the social body you know, I, I am embodied, I am a body, and uh, and I live in a social body that it right. keeps all three of those together at all times. Yeah, I'm glad that I asked, kind of like, uh, uh, you know, sometimes you hear something like, uh, is it original to him or have right. I read or heard somewhere <laughs> yeah. else? I'm sure you've heard it somewhere else, but um, but I, I thought it was really helpful uh, for my own thinking. Yeah, and in Christianity, that's the whole concept when we talk right. about being in the body um of uh you know being a, being the body of christ being in the body of christ and uh, uh, being the body of christ it's like those three things are there too i see that community yeah. i see that community in the triunity of christ um individually as mm -hmm. i become community of that but then uh, i am part of the community where jesus is the head of the community of believers so that's why i, I love that uh connection the way you're making so using your framework, could you better, um, uh, well, well, let me say this, using your framework, could we better appreciate the people in other denominations or religions who practice different rituals? For example, uh, I already said Muslims, Yeah. Um, they practice a lot of those things, Hinduism and all that. Uh, interestingly, um, there's a great, this is going to sound like a weird answer, but there's a great YouTube channel in Israel where the guy just goes around and asks people on the street any question that his viewers ask him to ask people. So he asks Palestinians and Israelis and Arab Israelis, and he just walks up to people and, and he doesn't edit their answers. And one of them was, you know, which, which two religions are more like each other, um, Judaism, Islam, or Christianity? Those were the three choices. So which mm. ones are more like each other? And the Jews and the Muslims in Israel, all hands down, every single one of them said, oh, uh, Islam and Judaism, those two go together. <laughs> and Christianity is this whole other thing. And when uh, he asked, okay, well, why do you say this? The answer was, we value, you know, we have similar ritual. They didn't say rituals, but we have similar practices, holidays. They value the community. They value uh, the authority of family. They value like the collective. They value the the body within the social body, the community. Mm. And so I think there's a sense where, uh, and that's in Israel, and these are like Palestinians and Arab Israelis. So these aren't necessarily people who would necessarily have good reasons to to highlight the other group and say, hey, yeah, I love these people, right? I mean, there's some people who have natural reasons to say, no, I don't want to be like them, um, or at least political reasons. And yet they seem to think this was just obvious. Everybody just thought it was like, oh, obviously it's, it's Jews and, uh, and Muslims. And, but it's Jews and Muslims because they see affinity in the practices of the community that they dovetail with scripture, I think, more is, is essentially how they would put it. Hmm. And so I think there's some, and I saw that, and, and I tell, whenever I take students there, I always tell them this, and I say, now, when we go to Israel, I want you to try and figure out what they're talking about. Why would they hmm. say this? I have, I, I've lived in Israel and uh, you know, spent a lot of time over there, and I, I just feel like I've learned more about my own Christianity from Muslims and Jews <laughs> than I necessarily have when I was a pastor in the Midwest from other Christians. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was just, it was stark how narrow my world was. And so mm -hmm. uh, I think we have so much to learn. I think we can, we can learn and critique at the same time. I don't think it needs right. to be all fluffy right. kumbaya. 
right. think we can also say, and here's why my tradition would say no to some of these things or would say no on some of these points, but we can still love each other as sisters and brothers and, and learn from one another yeah. and let the Holy Spirit do the work uh, that needs to be done there. Amen. And I think that would be a, something, Drew, you should take on, man. You okay. should uh, do that kind of uh, um, interview. Like, mm. seriously, what, what, what would it look like if we do the same thing in Queens mm. um, over there, uh, Jackson Heights area, or do the same thing in uh, uh, Brooklyn, mm. uh, where, uh, you know, over there by Coney Island area, there's a yeah, large yeah. Muslim population and Jewish and population. Jewish population, yeah. Right? Yeah, or uh, um, do it even in Metuchen, where I'm right now, I'm in Metuchen, Edison area. Oh, a yeah. lot of Arabs, yeah. Jews, uh, all kind of people living. What will look? I, I wonder. I'm, I'm also academic too. Uh, I am with Liberty. I teach online, right? Um, uh, with Liberty, but I, I like these kind of things. What would look like if we would? Would there be a change of answer if we change the context? Because over there you have Jewish and Islam domination of those two religion or culturally dominated they have dominated that region for so long mm. so perhaps that's different from western mm. environment where christianity uh has been a dominating factor or at yeah. least christian yeah. judeo-christian values so i wonder if the answer I, I don't know i'm just it just gave me a thought all right so here's as we close uh we we had a wonderful conversation by the way but as we close i want to uh, close with a uh, some sort of TikTok humorous note. <laughs> so tell me a joke, my friend. So let's uh, let's finish with a joke to lighten a, the mood. Uh, a, a joke. Um, let's. See. I only know knock knock. Oh, here I got a good one. This is my favorite joke. It's a dad joke, though. So from I one dad, dad to jokes. another. Yes. Um, did you hear about the agnostic dyslexic insomniac? No, I haven't. Oh. Yeah, he stayed awake all night wondering if there really was a dog. <laughs> Seriously, this, this is like a, um, so your job, uh, you see, uh, you are a smart dad, dad, with oh. a smart dad joke. Mines are more like a flat, <laughs> slowly, like, you know, when you drink those flat, uh, you oh, know, soda, Sprite or yeah, soda, yeah, yeah, yeah. mines are like that. It's just yeah. flat. He's like, oh, man. Um, but, but thank you so much. I get it. And I'm sure many fathers going to love that uh, jo joke too. But let me ask you as we, um, I just want to make sure we get this in our episode. If the listeners wants to get in touch with you or find your book, what are the easiest way? I have a, I call it a narcissism web hole, <laughs> drewjohnson.com, Drew which is D-R-U johnson.com uh and then i have all that stuff linked over there or the center for hebraic thought which is hebraicthought.org can or the biblicalmind.org which has all of our articles trying to translate these ideas in scripture into the felt needs of the people in the church good great that will also be included in the episode descriptions so thank you so much for being on the show andrew it was uh, a drew, pleasure. Uh, sorry so drew is it short for something or Drew is just it's, it's short for Andrew. Yeah. That's what I thought. But only my mother called me Andrew and okay. she's not alive anymore. So, so since no I'm more not Andrew. your mother, I'm not going to call you Andrew. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, so uh, thank you so much again. That was uh, Dr. Drew Johnson of the King's College and uh, the Center of Hebraic Thought. And thank you to all our listeners. If you appreciate this podcast, 
please be sure to subscribe to the show and leave an honest review wherever you listen to your podcast. Tune in next week for more honest discussions from diverse voices. You've been listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javed, which presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Please check back for new episodes every week.